And when Jesus was, was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. There is something there about evangelism that's very simple that we ought to gather. But do you know when Matthew 25 talks about the sheep and the goats, and it mentions that the sheep took an interest in sick people? Matthew 25 does not say that the sheep healed the sick people. It says that they visited them. Let me just say that to you again. In Matthew 25, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats on the basis of whether or not they did something for him, you know about this story, right? You know. And he talks about when he was sick or when he was in prison. The question is whether or not they visited him. Or what I'm trying to say to you is that if you've never been to the program in meat ministry, and if you're nervous about giving a hot foot bath and don't know how to do it, or if you feel like you don't know the difference between diabetes and high blood pressure, you can still be qualified to be a sheep in Matthew 25 if you'll take a personal interest in someone who is sick. Do you know? You can visit them. You can show that you care. And in visiting them and showing that you care, you make quite an opening for sharing of many different types. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't learn how to do those simple things. Jesus did offer to come and make a difference, and you should too. But when he made this offer, the man did not see fit to invite Jesus to come. He said in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Do you know that the centurion had a larger faith than anyone Jesus had encountered in the first 30 years of his life. In 30 years of living where he lived, Jesus did not encounter anyone that had as much faith as the Roman soldier. And that makes me wonder, what was special about the Roman soldier's faith? Let me just tell you some things I observed in what we read. I observed that the Roman soldier was earnest when he came to Jesus. Do you remember what the Bible says? that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And I noticed that when he came to Jesus, that he wasn't asking something for himself, he was asking something for someone else. It was his servant. Let me make another plug at the fact that someone here should plant a church in McKenzie and someone else should do it in Huntington. It will make your prayer life much better. It's when you're doing service that you have content for your prayers. When you're not doing service, your prayers are either short, redundant, or selfish, or dry. It's, in other words, to pray for an hour, 
It's not that you like talk about your own sins for 60 minutes in a row. You, to pray for an hour, you ought to have a substantial list of needy people that you care about. And evangelism fills up your needy, your prayer needs. I see Brother Samuel agreeing with me with his eyes, and I know he does because I walked in on him praying yesterday morning. I thought there was going to be worship at 6.30 in the morning, and when I went into where I thought it was going to be, he was praying, and I was in there long enough to hear that he was praying for people. Well, that's how it works with lawn prayers. You pray for people. Probably, even without evangelism, you can think of a lot of sick people to pray for. But if you want to have power in your prayers, you're going to have to do evangelism. Because most of the people who are sick are sick because of how they've lived. And your prayers for them don't make much difference at all. Or maybe I should say it different. They don't do anything like what you're praying for. Or let me say this another way. I know that you have had special prayer, probably even in this church, in the last, well, this church has only been here, what, 14, 15 years? But you've been going to church longer than that. So let's say in the last 30 years of your life, those of you who are 50, you've probably prayed in 30 years, you've probably paid for almost 1,000 people that have cancer. And I bet you 800 of them died of it. Well, maybe not, because survival rates are going up. But what I'm trying to tell you is that if you want to have power in your prayer, you're going to have to do evangelism and have sin issues and needy issues and hungry people that you're praying for. That'll make a difference for you. But back to the soldier. He was earnest in his petition. He was selfless in his prayer. He was praying for something for someone else. And more than that, he did not feel like he deserved anything from Jesus. Can you see in the story that he didn't feel worthy? He didn't even feel like he deserved to have Jesus in his house, much less to work a miracle for him. So his idea wasn't that I deserve something, but it was that, Jesus, because you're kind and powerful, please do it anyway. And I noticed that he's not part of the church. Do you observe that when you just read the story? You're just thinking that Jesus found someone with great faith who wasn't part of the church. Isn't that interesting? Turn forward a few pages to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15 is the only other New Testament chapter where Jesus talks about someone who has great faith. Someone living that has great faith. It's the only other place. So we're going now to verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, you son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. Do you see some things that this lady has in common with the soldier? For one thing, she's not part of the church. For another thing, she's not asking something for herself, but something for her daughter. For another, she is earnest in her petition. She's asking, with, she's not coming to Jesus like you would talk to a peer friend. Or let me preach on that for just a moment. Prayer is talking to God as to a friend. But please don't misunderstand that idea to say that prayer is talking to God as to a peer. 
by a peer, I mean someone who is your equal. If Barack Obama becomes my friend, that's not going to make him into my peer. And when I talk to him, it's going to be Mr. President. Maybe if we're friends for a long time, I might begin to call him Barack. I can't imagine it. But even if it did, it would be with a great deal of respect. I, and that he's a man. When we speak to God, the earnestness we show gives some evidence of the fact that we know that we are a suppliant asking someone who is mighty. But when we talk to God in a nonchalant way, almost like we would talk to someone who is on our same level, that type of communication, that lack of respect, is an irreverence that really reduces the power of our prayers. It's why it's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. We left off in verse 22. Verse 23. But Jesus did not answer her even a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, so now they're praying, send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, that had to be hard for her to listen to. It had to be hard to have the chosen men not even want to have her around. Not only does the master not answer, but the others don't answer. And then they ask the master to send her away and complain about her like she's a nuisance. That had to be hard for her to take. But it had to be worse when Jesus said, I'm only sent to the Israelites. But notice what she does. It says, this is verse 24, or verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not appropriate. That's what meat means there. It is not appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. That, how can I illustrate this? From talking to uh, Sister Jackson this morning on the way to church, I know that there are some prejudicial towns or areas around here. I don't know how far away, but I know that I heard about one. I have lived in a town that had no black people other than my students. That was Amity in the early 90s. Amity, Arkansas. Amity still is that way, but there's just a lot more students now. And since Amity only has a few hundred people, that makes a demographic difference. I know in a place that is full of prejudice that you have to be real careful how you talk. Because some things you say could be misunderstood. They could be perceived in a way you did not intend. And if you know that and you realize the kind of prejudice that existed between Jews and Samaritans, you will realize that what our Lord Jesus says in this verse wasn't the kind of careful thing that I'm talking about. Does that make sense to anyone here what I'm talking about? What did Jesus, in a way, compare the woman to? 
In a way, he compared her to a dog. And I know there are many of us. No, I don't know you. I just guess that there are many of us. That if someone talked in a way like that, that was an esteemed religious leader, and they compared us seemingly on the basis of our race, because that's how it had to seem in this verse, didn't it? If seemingly on the basis of our race, they compared us to a dog, something would rise up inside of us and would not be content. But what does the woman say? She says, truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Listen, this woman does not feel one bit more worthy than the centurion. She feels unworthy of any special attention from Jesus. But she thinks that he has so much power and gifts and love that even what spills over might be enough to satisfy her. So because of her need, she pushes through apparent rejection. She pushes through apparent rejection and just continues to ask. You know the way Elijah did when he prayed for rain and nothing happened. And he prayed for rain again and still nothing happened. And I think that if he prayed seven times and nothing happened, he might have prayed eight times. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That even the centurion had to push through an apparent prejudicial barrier even to approach a Jewish teacher. What I'm trying to tell you is that if you want to have a faith like these two people, it can't be a faith that gives up easily or gets easily hurt or offended. It's going to have to be a faith that feels so unworthy that insults almost bounce off. A faith that is willing to keep asking God for things when it sees no evidence that he's answering because it knows what he's like and, care, and knows that he cares. A faith that pushes and is persistent. Let's just see what Jesus says. This is verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto the woman, Great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. I just hope that there's no one here that thinks that I've just tried to give a justification for racial slurs. If you do think that, you misunderstood me. But let me just clarify. Why would my Savior talk this way to the woman? I think it's the same reason that the sun goes down at night. It's because her faith was powerful. And there's no way that we ever would have seen it if it had not been put to a rigorous test. Jesus knew how she would respond. And he allowed himself, he chose to speak in a way that would make what she had show up. It is distinct, in fact, from the way his own disciples act in the chapter 14 and in chapter 16 on either side of this chapter. Chapter 14 is that chapter where Peter says, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And then he gets out. 
and he walks, and then he gets distracted, you know, by the waves, and he begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, do you know what he cries out? Save me. And then the Lord saves him. But Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Does little faith have the wherewithal to get out of a boat and walk on water? Let me ask this a different way. Did Peter have little faith? Did he get out of the boat? That's what I'm trying to help you think through, is that Peter, with little faith, got out of the boat and he walked on the water. But that little faith wasn't like the woman's. It didn't push through the difficulties. It hit the difficulties and faltered. That's not what great faith is like. And it wasn't selfless like the woman. He was asking a gift for him ver- for his very own self. He said, ask me to get out of the boat. That kind of faith, little faith, is an up and down experience. It really does believe in the power of Jesus. I know he did because what did he cry out when he was afraid of dying? Isn't that evidence that he really believed? And is little faith enough to get help? He did get help, didn't he? The problem with little faith isn't that it's worthless. It's that it doesn't have much peace. Little faith comes and goes. It doesn't push through difficulties. It doesn't hold on. It doesn't recognize its own weakness and unworthiness. And that causes all kinds of problems. That's chapter 14. In chapter 16, after talking to this woman, that's where the disciples, you know, Jesus fed several thousand people. Then he told them to carry or gather up the fragments. There were enough fragments to feed the disciples for some time or others that they would share them with. But the next day, when they got on the boat, they forgot to take the bread. Have you read this in chapter 16? And that's when Jesus said that enigmatic statement. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they began thinking, oh no, he caught us. We forgot to take bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said to them, Why are you reasoning among yourselves as if their cause is because you haven't taken bread? Don't you remember the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up or the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? How is it that you don't remember or don't understand what I'm trying to tell you? Then they understood. Jesus told them in that little story, O you of little faith. His disciples, who were they? The ones that had little faith. And the people outside of the church, who were they? The ones that had great faith. And I'm trying to help you understand something as Seventh-day Adventist. The reason that you are the people in Camden and Huntington and Mackenzie and wherever else you're from, the reason that you're the ones that know the Three Angels' messages, it's not because you're the most spiritual people around. It's not because you are the greatest and most studious persons in the neighborhood. There's a different reason, and that's not it. At least in the time of Jesus, the 12 disciples weren't even the strongest faith people around. You know that? 
they were just the ones he chose. This might lead you to a question. Why, Jesus, did you choose the 12 when you could have chosen the soldier and the woman? Right? And I want to answer that for you also. It's not that... It's not that Jesus couldn't have chosen others. But your obligation to God is based much more on your knowledge than on your faith. It's what you know that makes you obliged. Let me try to say that another way. I have a wallet, and in my wallet is some money. And if I handed $10 to Martin and said, this is for my wife, that creates an interesting scenario where Martin has my money and I gave it to him with my own hands, but it still doesn't belong to him. He has it, but it's not his. I gave it to him to give to someone else. And in that situation, how will we view it if Martin pockets the money as his very own? You know, we will view that as theft even though there was no breaking and entering, even though I put the money in his hand, it still is theft. I'm trying to help you understand in Jeremiah 23 why Jesus complains about prophets who are stealing God's words from their neighbors. It's not that the neighbors had them and the prophets took them. What the chapter says is if they had spoken my word, then they would have made a difference. It's that when God gives his word to you, he gives it to you for someone else. It's not for you only, it's for someone else. And when you share, that's what makes a difference for the people. It's what makes a difference for you. And I know, Martin, that you would pass that $10 on. So Jesus chose the 12 disciples because they were part of Israel they inherited a great deal of knowledge that those outside the church didn't have. You know, the 12 disciples grew up knowing something about the Sabbath and about the sanctuary. They knew something about Jehovah and his history in the Old Testament. Because of where they grew up, they were aware of a lot of ideas, and the idea of like dressing modestly was familiar to them, and they wouldn't think about eating something that was unclean. They didn't have to be persuaded about that. They understood these things, not because they were so studious, mind you, but because they sort of inherited that. Can you follow what I'm saying? Because didn't some of you inherit that? I know I saw enough ones that not everyone here inherited that, but some of us are kind of like that. We inherited that. We didn't have to find that on our own. It is your knowledge that makes you obligated to share. And that's why Paul said, I am debtor both to the... Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. It's not like he had ever met them. It's not like he had a transaction with them. He was a debtor to them because God had given him something that was for them. That's what I love about the literature work. It's an opportunity to do something for someone, to be there sharing. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands how many of you this week, have, I'm not asking you, have like given away a piece of literature or shared 
some vital idea or spiritual truth with someone who doesn't share your denominational preference. But my guess is not many of you would be able to raise your hand and that you all should be able to. One of my favorite experiences with Don McIntosh, I don't know if you know that name. He's on 3BN sometimes. He's a teacher out at Weimar. I had my students listening to him one day when he came in five or ten minutes late for the lecture. And when he came in, he acted like he was itching all over. Like it was an illustration, but he was like scratching himself all over and talking about, and he said, I itch all over. He says, it's been something like it's been more than three hours since I've talked to a non-Adventist. Do you understand what he was communicating to my students? It's that we have to watch it. If we don't watch it, we could think we're doing our duty when all we're doing is bouncing off each other. And that isn't it. I hope that doesn't hurt too much, but if it does, it's because it cuts, because it should. Jesus chose the twelve to give them a chance to discharge their duty. And Jesus can use persons with weak faith if they combine that with a teachable spirit. What the disciples had going for them was a teachable spirit and a little bit of faith. And Jesus could cultivate that into a knowledgeable experience with a lot of faith. Yeah, you understand. Have you heard the idea that faith is a leap in the dark? It's not. Faith is the most rational approach that you can make to the evidence in favor of a loving and all-knowing God. Faith is rational. And I just want to say something that's something like a vaccination that has no mercury in it. I want to say to you that if you know this many reasons to believe in the truth, and tomorrow someone brings up an objection to what you know, and you can't find any resolution. None of your elders, none of your pastors, none of your friends, none of them can resolve it. I want you to know that it's not rational to abandon your faith on the basis of that. It's not rational to take one reason and to let it outweigh a hundred that a rational approach does not require that you are able to resolve every difficulty. It's an irrational idea that says that if you can't resolve every doubt, it's not sensible to believe. That's as if, that's as if it's true that because you can't resolve one doubt, you should discount the hundred evidences in favor of the theory. Faith is no leap in the dark. Faith is a sensible approach to the evidence in favor of a loving and all-knowing God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41. I think there's even some of you with gray hairs here that even know people who've made the very mistake I just described. People who have encountered some objection and thought about it until it just destroyed their faith. Isaiah 41, and looking at verse 21, this is God speaking. He's not really speaking to you, nor to me, nor to the heathen. 
He's speaking here to idols. Not that he expects them to communicate back. He says, produce your cause, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them, that is the idols, bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show us the former things and what they are, that we may consider them and know the latter end of things, or declare unto us things to come. Show us the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, you are of nothing and your work of naught. Let me say this to you in another way. Christianity and Adventism in particular has an advantage intellectually over Buddhism and Hinduism, over Islam and Hedonism, over secularism and even Mormonism. It has one over all those things. It is predictive prophecy. The fact that the Bible has made predictions in Daniel 2 and 7 and 8 and 9 that Daniel 7, incredibly, not only predicted that there would be an empire after Persia, after Babylon, Persia, it predicted there would be two. But then it predicted that that second one would not be followed by a fifth, but instead it would divide up into a number of independent sovereign nations. And that those would persist, many of them, until the very end of this earth's history without ever being united together. That is an incredible prediction. Do you know that those independent nations of Europe have persisted for a longer period of time than the combined reigns of Persia and Greece and Babylon put together? And they still are persisting today? Do you know that those seven nations are a small part of the world map that was insignificant when the book of Daniel was written, but that in the last 300 years, those seven small nations have controlled Australia and Indonesia and the Philippines and Pakistan and India and the islands of the sea and almost all of South America and all of North America, except for the very western part at that point. In fact, they have controlled almost all of the border countries in Africa and a good chunk of the Middle East. That is amazing. That God could see that coming and speak of it, how these seven independent nations, though they would not coalesce, would be the the dominant power in this earth's history. I'm not trying to give you a longer lecture on predictive prophecy, but what I want you to understand is that faith is not contrary to reason. Faith is a rational approach, and it is unbelief that is irrational in how it holds on to doubts and perplexities. I'm not saying that unbelief only holds on to perplexities that, or let me say it another way. I'm not saying that unbelief, I think, I don't know how to say this sentence, but I sure know what I'm thinking. 
Even if unbelief holds on to a doubt for which it finds no explanation, even that is irrational in view of all the other data. All right, I have talked plenty of time. I'm going to review with you since I see a number of you going to sleep already, and I'm going to close. If you want to have an experience of great faith, there are a couple models you can follow in the New Testament. Neither one of them are part of the church, but it doesn't mean you should leave the church. It just means you should be more humble about the fact that you know what you know. But you should be earnest in your petition. And you should begin asking things for others. And make it part of your prayer to recognize that you don't deserve anything from God. That it's because of what you need, not because of what you deserve, that you would dare ask. Make it very clear by the way you pray that you don't falter in your belief just because nothing seems to happen when you pray. You're going to pray and pray and pray and be like that woman that pushes through the worst apparent rejection. It will eventually be said to you, great is your faith, be it unto you even as you wilt. If it is that your heart's desire and prayer to God was for someone else that they might be saved. Do we have an obligation to Huntington and to Mackenzie? You do, not based on anything they've done, but based more particularly on the fact that they have a need and that God has given you a privilege. Should you put the work of planting the churches there squarely on the students? That is foolishness because they are only here for about four months at a time. And it takes longer than that to finish a lot of the kind of relationships that it takes to win a soul. I think if you took out of our church plant everyone that it took more than four months to win them, our church would be depopulated. It's just a time-consuming business to bring someone through all the difficulties of accepting the three angels' message. And that's even if you don't get into all the extra things that you've been learning about. I'm talking about the fundamental basic things. That's hard. So you can't put it on them, even though it seems like they have more energy and know more than you do. What about if you're one of the ones here who just has less skill and less knowledge than others? Can you just put it on the church members who have the more? No. Because you want to get to heaven too. So you're going to have to do what you can, even if that means visiting the sick, which is something you certainly can do. If it means visiting those that are in jail, which is something you certainly can do. Isn't that something you certainly can do? You can visit. And if you have made a ministry that boils down to reading good books and writing nice things on Facebook and spiritual quotes, I want you to understand that while there's nothing wrong with that, that isn't it. That if you don't cultivate relationships with those who don't know, that you are helping put the bushel over the candle. And even if the candle's burning, that's not a good idea. I've said so many mean things to you, I don't know what you're going to think. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to advocate for the people who can't advocate for themselves. You know, the Peel McKenzie aren't going to come here and say, please come over and help us. It doesn't mean they don't need help. It just means that they don't know where to ask for it.
We have weak faith, but when we start to do for others, our faith will grow. And that is reasonable, rational, and is the very thing that we need. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.